I can do whatever you want. Share my slides. Okay, is this the right view, Lindsay? Yep. Okay, perfect. So I'm Alpa Sidhu. I'm a clinical geneticist in the Division of Medical Genetics and Genomics. And um, with Dr. Harshman and Dr. Silibero in neurology, we run the tuberous sclerosis um, multidisciplinary clinic. And Dr. Christy Thomas had um, reached out to see if we could chat today about TSC. So I'm going to do everything except nephrology. And then Lindsay's going to cover um, the nephrology portion of it. So um, here, let me just minimize the, here we go, okay. So TSC is a multi-system disorder, virtually head to toe, every system is affected. The incidence is approximately one in 6,000 live births. So um, from a genetics perspective, we deal, deal with very, very rare conditions. So this is one of the less rarer um, conditions that we encounter. It's a dominant condition, so every affected person has 50% risk of passing on the condition with every offspring. Now, there are two genes that are associated with tuberous sclerosis complex that actually form a complex, and hence it gets the name, TSC1 and TSC2. TSC1 encodes for a protein called hemartin, um, and TSC2 encodes for a protein called tuberin. There are some genotype-phenotype correlations, and they're all associated with a higher frequency of severity um, and severity um, in TSC2 versus TSC1, um, but not for all the features. So the features that we know are associated with a higher severity and frequency are um, tubers and nodules in the brain, SEGA or subependymal giant cell astrocytomas, retinal hematomas, lymphangial leomyomatosis, which is a pulmonary finding, cardiac rhabdomyomas, renal and hepatic angiomyolipomas, and some skin lesions. The one that we are not sure if actually there is a genotype-phenotype correlations are on the right side here, um, and they include gingival fibromas, dental pits, MMPH, which is multifocal micronodular pneumocyte hyperplasia, which is also a lung finding, sclerotic bone lesions, which actually do not affect the patient at all, but are picked up incidentally, hematomatous, rectal polyps, and skin, and some rare manifestations. Now, important to know from a nephrology perspective is that there is a contiguous gene deletion syndrome, which includes not only the TSC2 gene, but also the PKD1 gene, which is the autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. And hence, these patients have both the genes missing, leading to a more severe um, phenotype of polycystic kidney disease. So from a um, cellular perspective, as I said, TSC1 and TSC2 form a complex, um, and their job really is to inhibit mTOR. The function of mTOR is to cause protein synthesis that leads to cell growth and proliferation, angiogenesis, cell metabolism, cell orientation, and migration. So in the absence of this inhibitory pathway, mTOR sustains and causes unproliferated growth leading to the formation of tumors. Hence, the target of patients with TSC are mTOR inhibitors, inhibiting this pathway, um, leading to mitigation of downstream effects. Now, when we talk about clinical features, it's important to remember what's the incidence of the system, as in, are they affected 100%, 20%, 30%? Um, also, 
what is the age of onset of these symptoms? Because when I see a patient with TSE um, who, does, who does not have an underlying genetic mutation, um, and that does happen in 30% of our patients, but they meet clinical criteria, the next step is to see the other at-risk family members, so parents and siblings. Um, parents are relatively easier to rule out because they're adults, and if they do not have the, their skin affected, um, it's very, very less likely that they themselves have TSE, and so that's kind of important to remember for me as a geneticist. So the affected lesions on the skin are called hypomelanotic macules, which were previously called as ash leaf macules. Um, sometimes I have to use a wood slam to actually determine if they exist or not, especially in light-skinned individuals, since the differentiation um, in the color is not very evident. These, as you see, are present in 90% of individuals. Um, facial angiofibromas look just like acne, um, and they're very easily misdiagnosed as acne um, if no other features exist in the child. They tend to usually occur later on in life and become more and more prominent surrounding puberty. Chagrin patches are not commonly seen early on in life, and they usually become more evident in the young childhood. They look just like an orange peel, and I will um, show you pictures in a bit. Fibrous cephalic plaque is another connective tissue nevus that's present in the forehead and scalp. Um, they usually um, are more evident um, at the time of puberty, so at the same time as facial angiofibromas are seen. And then ungual fibromas are these growths surrounding the nail beds. Um, and these also usually appear later on in life at or after puberty. I would say that in adults, I've seen them in the majority, but not so much in the earlier years of life. So these are some of the pictures. These are the facial angiofibromas. They tend to be more confluent in the nasolabial folds where they tend to irritate the skin quite a lot. Um, these are the hypomelanotic macules. This is a fibrous cephalic plaque. As you can see, this is raised connective tissue nevus. This is quite lobular um, fibrous cephalic plaque. These are called confetti type of hypopigmented skin lesions, um, usually seen on the extremities. Now, these are the ungual fibromas that you can see the bumps here. In addition to the ungual fibromas, you also see that the nails have pitting and ridges, um, and they are not normally formed. That is also quite characteristic of TSC is the deformed nails. Um, and then this is the chagrin patch, most commonly seen in the lower back, but I've seen them anywhere um, along the trunk as well. So what is the management for these skin lesions? For the facial angiofibromas, very commonly what's recommended is topical mTOR inhibitors, topical serolimus is the one that's prescribed. There have been studies to look for um, management changes with a fibrous plaque with the mTOR inhibitors as well, as is shown in, in this publication. So this is at the start of treatment and this is the end of 36 months. And you can see there's a decrease um, in the protuberance and the size, and this is the effect of the angiofibromas, which um, looks really, really clean um, after um, almost 36 months of treatment, but the effects start pretty early on <clears throat> in treatment as well. So sun protection is advised, the hypomelanotic macules are photosensitive, um, and the protuberant lesions, they can also be excised surgically, either by excision themselves or laser um, treatment. From a CNS perspective, um, the subepigeminal nodules and seizures. These are the two main features of TSC. The subepigeminal nodules or SENs can be seen in newborns 
an enlarging SEN is called a SEGA, which is what we worry about and the reason for repeat brain surveillance. Um, they can actually cause or lead to um, obstructive hydrocephalus and the, re and the uh, resultant need for a shunt um, if that does happen. Tubers um, are seen as in the cerebral cortex and the underlying white matter and can be seen early on, um, even in 20 weeks of gestation. Seizures, uh, most common, um, they are seen as a mix of partial motor, complex partial, partial secondary generalized and infantile spasms as well. Um, usually seen in, in younger uh, children, um, very rarely seen in adults. So the majority you would encounter early on in life. Um, and then there is this group of um, what we call as TSC associated neurodevelopmental or neuropsychiatric disorder or TAND that en encompasses the ID, autism spectrum, behavioral issues, developmental delay, and psychosocial issues, which I'll talk about in the next slide. So these are some imaging findings. These are the tubers that you see in the subcortical white matter. This is a radi radial migration line is what this is called. These are tubers as well. Um, this is um, a partial lobectomy for intractable seizure. Um, this is These are subepingimal nodules. And then this is a SEGA. As you can see, this could potentially lead to um, obstructive hydrocephalus and the need for shunt. So TAND or TSE-associated neuropsychiatric disorders includes um, various assessments. So the assessments are done for behavior, psychiatric, intellectual, academic, neuropsychological, and psychosocial level with each of them having their own um, subcategories to um, look at. TAND questionnaires should be done at each and every neurodevelopmental assessment early on in life. They're done more frequently and later on um, in adults, they're done at frequent um, intervals. So from a management perspective, um, what's recommended per guidelines is to do a baseline brain MRI and baseline EEG at diagnosis, a developmental and behavioral evaluation, including a TAN checklist. Um, if a patient has an acutely symptomatic SEGA, then surgical resection is really the only choice with or without shunt, although some people advocate for starting mTOR inhibitors prior to surgical resection to decrease the size of the mass. If the SEGA is growing but is otherwise symptomatic, then mTOR inhibitors are the uh, route of choice. Um, for infantile spasm, vigabatrin is used. And it's important to remember if, if a baby is on a vigabatrin, then um, the child needs regular eye exams to look for evidence of retinal toxicity. Everolimus and oral CBD oil has also been approved for seizure treatment. And then surgery is really considered when there's refractory seizures that are just not amenable to treatment. So moving on to ophthalmological features, we see retinal hematomas um, and achromic patches. The eye involvement, as you see, is 30 to 50%. So important to remember that 50 to 80%, 50 to um, 70% of patients will not have eye involvement um, if they have TSC. Um, these are the retinal hematomas that you see um, in these images. <clears throat> now, mTOR inhibitors have been tried um, with not a whole lot of success, uh, but some partial success in treating aggressive retinal astrocytic hematomas. Again, patients who are in vigabatrin need regular eye exams to look for toxicity of the retina. 
from a lung perspective, it's a very interesting um, pathology that we see. Um, first of all, the pathology is seen primarily in females and not so much in males. Um, there is a estrogen sensitive involvement of the, of the lung pathology. There is a, uh, uh, something called as LAM, which is lymphangioleomyomatosis. If you split it up, it means there's lymphatic involvement, vascular involvement, and muscular proliferation. The LAM cells are actually not inherently present in the lung, but they are known to actually come across from the lymphatic circulation. The origin of LAM cells is not known. What's postulated is that they come from the hepatic or renal um, angiomyolipomas, and then they tend to proliferate in the lung. They have estrogen and progesterone receptors on them, and hence um, exogenous estrogen or estrogen that is used for contraceptive purposes is completely contraindicated in, in, a, in a female um, who has TSC. So um, 30 to 40 percent of um, females can exhibit LAM, um, and possibly up to 80 percent are affected by age 40 years. Um, LAM screening is not done routinely for males uh, unless they're symptomatic, but they're, it's routinely done from age 18 years um, for females. In addition to LAM, what we see are pulmonary cyst and an entity called MMPH, which is multifocal micronodular pneumocyte hyperplasia. Um, and these are nodular densities. So what you see in this imaging finding is the replacement of lung alveoli by smooth muscle cells, which is the LAM. Um, and then you see these cysts um, that are present in the lungs. So management for, for lungs, um, like I mentioned, the baseline chest CD is done in all females and in symptomatic males. Um, which starts at age 18. Previously, it was age 25, but by the recent updated guidelines, um, they've moved the age to 18. If the initial screen is negative, then it's repeated every five to seven years through menopause. If there is finding of cystic lung disease, then a pulmonary function test is done and a six-minute walk test is done. And mTOR inhibitors are reserved if there is LAM with abnormal lung function, there is air trapping, or there is rapid decline, um, or chylus effusions are present. And like I said before, um, we have to avoid exogenous estrogen um, for females. From a cardiac perspective, uh, perspective, we see these cardiac rhabdomyomas. Um, these are very interesting finding. You can see them prenatally on prenatal ultrasounds. And the natural history of cardiac rhabdomyomas in TSE is that they tend to regress over time. Um, and therefore, if you see them early on in life, we tend to do echocardiograms till they regress and then echocardiograms are not required. For the majority, they are non-obstructive. Um, they do not obstruct the left ventricle outflow tract. And so the only thing you do is observe. Um, in the rare event, and that they are obstructive, then mTOR inhibitors can be tried or um, surgery if it's not working. In addition to rhabdomyomas, uh, we can also see cardiac conduction abnormalities, even in the absence of a rhabdomyoma. And hence, guidelines are to do um, both echo and ECG um, at frequent intervals, even if a patient is asymptomatic. Um, for, for rhabdomyomas, we do it till the regression of the rhabdomyoma. And for ECG, we do it throughout life um, to look for cardiac conduction defects. 
From an oral and a hepatic standpoint, we see the gingival or intraoral fibromas that is denoted with the arrow here. Typically, they are um, not painful. They don't cause any uh, distress to the patient. However, if the growth is too much, then sometimes they're surgically removed. Um, these are the dental enamel pits usually seen um, later on in life, more common in the permanent tooth. Um, literally 100% of patients would have these pits later on in life. And then there is an entity called hepatic angiomyelipomas, which are similar to the renal um, angiomyelipomas. The incidence is not very high. It's somewhere between 15 to 25% of patients would get a hepatic angiomyelipoma. So for the enamel pits, um, the recommendations are for any, as you would do for any um, dental uh, cavity or a, a um, uh, carry. Um, so you do sealants, uh, fluoride, and restorations. <clears throat> For the oral fibromas, um, they can be excised and deforming, but the majority of our patients tend to not be bothered by it. Now, I wanted to just mention this because the sclerotic bone lesions um, were a minor criteria that were removed in the 2012 update, and they have been reinstated as a minor criteria in the 2021 um, last year's update. The reason to reinstate them is that they tend to actually raise concern by a provider who's not really well-versed with TSC to the possibility of a metastatic cancer. And they really look um, like, like that, like you could easily confuse them. So for example, in this publication that used TSC patients and controls, um, these are the sclerotic lesions you see on the skull, the sclerotic um, lesions that you see on the vertebrae. Um, and then these are the sclerotic lesions you see on the jawbone. Similarly, you see the same lesions on vertebrae um, and on um, the extremities. So they are seen really as an incidental finding when you're doing a chest CT for surveillance for LAM or an abdomen MRI for surveillance for renal lesions, but they can be seen approximately in 60 to 80% of individuals. So pretty high um, finding in a TSC individual um, and hence it's been reinstated as a minor criteria. So we kind of went over the clinical criteria uh, in terms of the different systems. To get a clinical diagnosis, you have to have either two of these major features. Um, so the macules, the hypomelanotic macules have to be at least three or more. Each of them have to be at least five millimeters in diameter. Angiofibroma, at least three or more. Angle fibromas, at least two or more. Chagrin patch, retinal hematomas that are multiple. Tubers that are multiple. Um, Subepidermal nodule, two or more. A SEGA, cardiac rhabdomyoma, LAM, or two or more angiomyelipomas. Um, and then these are the minor criteria. You could also meet diagnosis if you have one major and two minor, or if you get a um, mutation or a pathogenic variant, either in the TSC1 or 2 genes. Um, there is an entity called sporadic LAM where you find mutations not in the blood. So they are, these are not germline mutations, but there are two somatic changes just in the lungs. Uh, patients with sporadic LAM, um, one third of those patients will have angiomyolipomas. And hence, if a patient has just LAM and angiomyolipomas, even though they are two major criteria, they do not get um, a, a clinical criteria, clinical diagnosis of TSC. So that's important to remember. Um, and then these are the surveillance for the TSC Alliance. Uh, we kind of went over them system-wise. I'm not gonna um, go over them again. 
And then this is the uh, publication for the updated um, TSC um, diagnostic criteria that was published just last year. And then I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Harshman. So, so Lindsay, I'm going to stop my share and then you can take it. Can you um, I see which screen are you seeing, Alpa? The real PowerPoint or the? Yes, this is the right one. Okay, perfect. So. Um, again, I'm, I think I know probably all of you, but I'm uh, Lindsay Harshman, Peds nephrologist, and I do the um, TSC care for our pediatric um, patients here in the state. And, and we do have a few young adults that for a variety of reasons we've kept in Peds because primarily um, related to developmental delays and so forth, who are just um, probably a little bit more um, well-equipped in pediatrics to keep some of those, those young adults in pediatrics for the time being. Um, so really from the last half of the talk, what we'll talk about is kidney tumors and the kidney sequelae associated with TSC, given that this is the nephrology new and hypertension conference. So again, why is it important? I really hope that by the end of the next kind of 20 minutes or so, you'll have a better idea of why TSC associated kidney disease is um, critical to be followed in this population. One of the things that I think is probably underreported or undertaught is that in general, TSC associated kidney disease is actually the most common cause of death in affected adults with TSC. And certainly in addition to this, TSC associated kidney disease can also lead to end-stage kidney disease um, requiring transplantation. <clears throat> the primary focus of the next 20 minutes will be on renal angiomyolipoma. And um, again, as we'll kind of discuss the literature um, on this topic, I think, has inc um, grown incredibly in the last probably 20 years or so. AMLs, as I'll call them from here on out, do belong to a family of tumors that are collectively referred to as um, um, pecomas or neoplasms with perivascular epithelioid differentiation. And they're typically highly distributed around blood vessels. Um, and so I have two things that are um, included in this um, in this uh, slide here. Actually, my little um, circle got moved um, off of the angiomyolipoma on this kidney, but hopefully you can see on this on the kidney on the right side here there is a pretty big black blob that is an angiomyolipoma. And similarly here on the um, lower um, part of the left kidney as well. Um, one of the I guess for me the sort of differentiating features of an angiomyolipoma is that they typically occur more cortically and look like basically a, a blob on top of the kidney or around the cortex of the kidney. And we're gonna talk quite a bit about the imaging um, differentiation of these as we go along. Um, so here as well, um, Alba had nicely um, described this on some of her slides, but just as um, sort of reinforcement, the care for patients with TSC is grounded really clearly in the TSC consensus guidelines so there have been, I think, three consensus conferences at this point in time, one in the early 2000s, one in 2012, and one just recently. And so the consensus guidelines are clear about how often somebody should be screened for TSC-associated sequelae, including kidney disease, and also what modality is preferred. Um, and I think that's something I really, really want to get across today is the preferred assessment from the kidney component, um, since the majority of, of folks on this um, call are nephrologists. 
So um, I won't reiterate the diagnostic criteria chart on the left side, but I will reiterate here the routine surveillance that is recommended by the TSC Alliance and the TSC consensus guidelines, including that MRI is um, thought to be first line for preferred routine surveillance in this population. Um, that should happen at the time of diagnosis and then every one to three years thereafter. So some of my patients who are, are little ones with um, TSC, they're gonna get their first MRI typically in, in babyhood when they're also getting um, brain imaging as well. Um, we try to get them in the scanner for two scans at once basically. Um, and then again, occurring every one to three years thereafter. Labs occurring every one to two years and um, uh, obviously blood pressure is very essential to our field. And so checking that on um, every visit. Sorry, um, real oh, yeah, quick. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, if uh, you do an MRI and you don't see evidence of an angiomyolipoma, when do you need to repeat imaging? Every three years. Okay. And then mm -hmm. if you do see it, you do surveillance more often. Yeah, exactly. And so that's one of sort of the gaps in the field, I would say, is that we don't, we can't really pinpoint, like, should it be every one year and, or again, like every 18 months. For some patients, if they have a TSC1 gene mutation and they're lower risk for angiomyelipomas, I may follow them every 18 months or so um, just to space out the imaging. In PEDS, one of the things we try really hard to do, and I think that's the beauty of this collaborative multidisciplinary model, is that when we see a patient and I say, actually, I wanna get imaging in one year, and maybe my colleague in neurology wants imaging in two years, we may try to hedge in the middle to save the patient an extra image along the way, especially if they need sedation. But every three years is the thought to be the standard for um, patients without an AML. And then from there, you can kind of use your clinical discretion. Thank you. Yeah, please feel free to ask questions along the way. Um, so we talked about this, um, you know, a decent amount already, but again, they, um, the angiomyolipomas are a major diagnostic feature of TSC. Um, I describe it to patients as these basically abnormal collections of fatty vascular muscular tissue all in one lump. Um, and, and typically you're supposed to have two, um, two lesions of these in, in isolation to potentially support diagnosis of, a, of TSC. But if you see one angiomyolipoma, you're gonna follow it and you're gonna potentially treat it. Um, these are usually asymptomatic in childhood, but by the age of 10, the majority of all TSC PEDS patients will have some visible AML on imaging. This is the historical data. I will say in my own practice, I typically, honestly, I see most of the growth, I feel like um, between ages 10 to 20 and sort of the hormonal, you know, driven adolescent years when some of these um, lesions are a little more hormonally sensitive. Um, by adulthood, the historical literature that's out there does say that 80% of adults with TSC will have one or more angiomyolipomas. So the majority of your patients with TSC, this will happen with age. The tumors themselves are benign by textbook definition, but they become symptomatic with tumor growth. That may include spontaneous bleeding um, in, in, in poorly surveilled patients, and that is the leading cause of death is the spontaneous bleed and basically bleeding out from these tumors. Um, you may have pain, they may have elevated blood pressure with larger symptomatic tumors. Um, and certainly conceivably, um, you, it's not surprising that with a lesion to a kidney, um, you basically have you know, a risk for slash chronic kidney disease. Um, over time, especially as these um, uh, lesions grow and become more invasive to the parenchyma. 
And as I mentioned, bleeding um, and rupture is, a, is a, a concern with these tumors and why they require such surveillance. Um, this spontaneous hemorrhage with these tumors, again, is the highest risk in fast growing tumors and tumors that are larger than six centimeters. We'll come back to this again in a few slides, but the TSC guidelines specific to angiomyelopoma do strongly recommend consideration to treatment of these tumors when you see an angiomyelopoma um, greater than three centimeters in size. Some, pa some papers will say greater than four, but in general, anything less than three, you should start, or greater than three centimeters in size, you should start thinking about treatment um, with an mTOR inhibitor, which again, we'll come back to in just a little bit. Um, angiomyelopoma can be detected early with appropriate screening. And I really hope this is something that everybody takes away from this, um, this lecture today is that early screening is critical. Um, if you have a patient who comes new to your clinic and they've only had ultrasound imaging, technically they are getting suboptimal imaging. Um, abdominal imaging with MRI, again, is the, is the recommendation from the consensus guidelines. Um, and so the reason MRI is so important is related to the composition of the tumors themselves, specifically the fat-based composition of the tumors. And, and I'm gonna talk about that here on the next slide. As I mentioned, um, the three centimeters sort of guideline is where we start saying treatment should be initiated. And three centimeters, to put it into context, is the size of like a nice, large, juicy grape or a, like a, a walnut is about four centimeters in size. So it may not seem that big, you know, at face value, but, you know, three to four centimeters actually is fairly, fairly large in the context of a, a you know, 10 centimeter, 12 centimeter kidney. So um, imaging modalities, as I talked about a second ago, MRI is the preferred modality because you have a higher risk with ultrasound of missing fat poor angiomyelopoma. Um, and I've had, I've had one patient in particular, a teenager come to our clinic who had had ultrasound only surveillance done locally for years. And then eventually there was some, there was a kind of a little goomba looking on the, on the ultrasound, right? Something was not right, it's concerned for an angiomyelopoma. And when we did the um, MRI of that patient's kidneys, they had a um, seven centimeter angiomyelopoma that had basically been completely missed on ultrasound. Um, in the past. And so that to me really, I think, seals the deal of why this is important is that, again, ultrasound may miss those fat poor angiomyelopomas that can actually grow fairly large before they're actually detected on ultrasound. Um, so MRI is the standard of care. Second line, actually, oddly enough, the consensus guidelines and the kidney community in TSC oftentimes will recommend CT imaging if you can't do an MRI. So for example, um, a vagal nerve simulator where the, the, the cord from the VNS crosses across the, the thorax, you technically are not supposed to image them in the same sequence um, um, with an MRI when the coil um, for the um, VNS is in the abdomen, which it, which it would be. So um, CT is thought to be potentially the next best option, although there are some emerging data that actually you probably can do MRI, for persons with a vagal nerve stimulator, you simply have to change the isocenter of the imaging um, to be able to get the um, MR compatible images with a VNS. Um, it's something that our radiology department's not comfortable doing yet here, but we're working on hopefully establishing some protocols to be able to minimize use of CT in this population. Um, ideally, to be able to get the best um, glimpse and understanding of the fat composition, you do probably need contrast with a CT 
which also sometimes feels a little bit funny. Um, but if I'm concerned that I probably have an angiomyelopoma in a patient with a vagal nerve simulator, I will go ahead and get the CT imaging with contrast, at least for a baseline to really determine what we're dealing with there. So um, use of TSC imaging guidelines in the US, what are we actually doing? Um, this is some data that actually my colleague, Amber Gedkin, who's a health services researcher here on campus, Amber and I looked at um, using commercially available um, insurance data. Because we wanted to say again, like, are we actually doing what we think we're doing with um, surveillance guidelines in the United States? And we did um, basically look at um, observational data retrospectively from 2003 to 2016. We looked at claims data from, from Walmart, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, um, over that period of time in patients less than 65 years of age. Um, and over half of the patients in this study that we looked at actually were pediatric patients, um, 16 or younger. And what we did is we looked over a period of time and over a follow-up period of up to 14 years within this cohort, the median kidney imaging rate was 0.13 procedures per year which could then be generalized to be um, approximately having imaging once every five to six years. So certainly way lower than it should um, be by guidelines. One of the things that was really interesting and actually kind of shocking with the data to me was that 43% um, of the patients in this commercially available insurance cohort had no kidney imaging in the observation period that we looked at. Again, looking at, we looked at ultrasound, MR, CT, you name it and um, nearly half had no um, good no kidney imaging whatsoever during this period. Um, the likelihood of having the right imaging or any imaging at all actually increased with having um, more specialists involved in your care, specifically nephrologists, which shouldn't be shocking to any of us. Um, so certainly I think, again, emphasizes the need for following the guidelines and collaborative um, multi-team care models. So risk factors for AML growth, and please stop me if people have questions as we go along. The three biggest risk factors actually, again, are um, female sex, just sort of the, the um, uh, adolescent hormone surges, um, especially um, more notable in, in women with um, menstrual cycles and so forth. Um, pregnancy and estrogen, again, related to um, hormonal changes and flux. But then on top of that is the TSC2 gene. So persons with a TSC2 gene are thought to be at higher risk for angiomyelopoma formation and or other kidney tumors, um, including renal cell carcinoma um, associated with TSC. Um, so Alpa mentioned this um, in one of her slides earlier, but um, TSC again is a disorder of the mTOR pathway. And so mTOR should be putting, um, putting the stop on, on, on much of the growth here on these basically the growth cell cycles. Um, and so basically with TSC, you have just the car is on, the brakes don't work. And so you have to be able to stop that mTOR um, disruption. And so that's where medications such as mTOR inhibitors um, come into play. Um, many of us are probably maybe more familiar with serolimus, it's an older drug, um, but in the uh, sort of TSC world, um, the better data actually exist for Everolimus um, more recently, if you compare the two kind of head to head. So, um, you know, the advent of mTOR inhibitors, um, again, such as serolimus and everolimus, has provided an opportunity to medically manage or medically ameliorate 
TSC-associated angiomyelopoma growth. Um, these have been ext extensively tested for safety and utility amongst persons with TSC having angiomyelopoma, as well as other TSC-associated sequelae. As I mentioned earlier, and I think again, one of the key takeaway points is that AMLs larger than four centimeters, again, some people will even say three, are more likely to grow and they're more likely to develop the micro or macro aneurysms and then become symptomatic and bleed. Um, again, as I mentioned, the international guidelines for surveillance and management of TSC do suggest that preemptive use of mTOR inhibitors, once you hit that three centimeter size, should strongly be um, considered in this population. And that's the practice that we've taken in, in our PEDS um, side of the TSC clinic here, is that if I have a PEDS patient that has an angiomyelopoma of three centimeters and the parents are open to it, we will start um, therapy pretty early on, um, given that the, the data are so good for this. Um, and so again, through the next couple slides, I'll basically extensively refer to um, Everolimus um, or Afenator is the brand name rather than serolimus, given that much of the better data um, exists for Everolimus rather than serolimus in this population. Um, the figure on the right here as well, I think is really beautiful data that um, comes from um, John Bissler, who's the um, director for nephrology at Le Bonheur down at Memphis. And he's one of the, the sort of kings of TSC associated kidney disease. He has the best data that's out there and has been extensively involved in publishing this data. And they suggest that in the use of Everolimus can decrease angiomyelopoma volume by 40 to 50%. And that longer term treatment probably confers continued reduction in AML volume. Um, again, it's safe and effective in this population overall um, and potentially spares these patients um, surgical intervention over time. So effective use of mTOR inhibitors and TSC. When I have a patient that comes into our clinic and they have an angiomyelopoma that, is, that warrants treatment, we'll talk with the families a lot about um, starting the medication. What things do we have to be aware of? We have a pharmacist in PEDS who also sees the patients with us and make sure we go through all of the um, medications that could um, potentially uh, cause problems with everolimus or mTOR inhibitors in general. Again, we're probably all familiar with this um, from an immunosuppression perspective, but inducers or inhibitors. Inducers can actually decrease the level of everolimus in the blood by increasing metabolism of the drug in the body. So for example, um, carbamazepine, which many of our TSC patients are on for seizures, phenobarbital, phenytoin, um, and or steroids. So we take this into account when we start the medication and planning dosing of the drug. Inhibitors, um, substances that can increase the level of everolimus in the blood through slower drug metabolism. Common um, uh, inhibitors that could interfere with everolimus metabolism certainly could include antifungals, cyclosporin, verapamil, and erythromycin. These are the most commonly cited inhibitors. So um, many times parents will come into my clinic and be concerned about starting in mTOR inhibitors because of what they've seen on TSC family like Facebook pages, the, the, the group pages that are out there that are families supporting each other through this diagnosis. Um, probably the biggest cited side effect of um, mTOR inhibitors in general, um, potentially maybe Everolimus more than Serolimus is mouth sores. Um, and sort of the aphthous ulcers, they can become 
pretty painful for some patients. Other patients of mine, they may just simply notice that they have swelling in their mouth and it may not really hurt per se, unless they're eating something spicy. Um, other common side effects are elevated lipids, um, LFTs, elevated blood glucose, and some will say again, proteinuria. Um, personally for myself, I have quite a few patients on Everlimus for this diagnosis, and I have not seen proteinuria um, in this population. And that's not to say that it can't happen or wouldn't happen, but I think it's probably more of an issue with serolimus than Everlimus. I have also not seen hypophosphatemia or phosphaturia basically um, in this drug category either. Other reported side effects of mTOR inhibitors, um, the drug listed side effects include pneumonitis and or increased risk of infection, particularly upper respiratory tract infections. Certainly also conceivably a risk for wound healing with mTOR inhibitors um, as well. Again, I have not seen that as an issue with um, Everolimus as much as serolimus historically reported. When we start these medications for our TSE patients, we typically do labs within two to four weeks of starting Everolimus to uh, monitor trough levels, and then um, approximately every four to eight weeks, depending on the patient, until a steady state is achieved and we have minimal side effects. One thing that's also important um, with these medications is that we do need to make sure you stop ACE inhibitors um, before you um, start, an Ever start Everlimus. Again, in practice, this is possible that it may overlap, but the, there is technically a black box warning for ACE inhibitors with mTOR inhibitors. So we put them on ARBs if they need. I always try to make sure vaccines are up to date, particularly um, COVID, pneumococcal, and influenza, although we do emphasize, again, uh, vaccines in general. So um, many people, again, the families in particular will ask about mTOR associated side effects um, and what do we do for them? So mouth sores being the biggest thing, um, I will be very honest. Some of these things are very anecdotal based on what um, we've learned from other centers. So for example, um, Memphis being a big kidney hub for TSC, we've collaborated with them closely and learned a lot of their tips and tricks. So actually using lysine, over-the-counter lysine twice daily, seems for many of my patients to be extremely effective in preventing mouth sores. Um, you can do actually Decadron swish and spit for a period of days to sort of reduce the inflammation um, associated with um, these mouth sores. You can use Kenalog dental paste. And in some patients, if they actually have enough stomatitis, um, we'll actually hold the medication for a week or two to let the, the mouth sores heal and then start back at a lower dose. My own experience has just been that in general, um, if we run our trough levels at approximately the three to five level, I don't see as much trouble with mouth sores. And that's typically what the data would suggest is if you're targeting a, an Everolimus trough of approximately five, you probably won't see as many of these side effects. Um, and that's what I've seen as well. Um, you also can I certainly see, again, lipids um, related issue with mTOR inhibitors. Um, we emphasize weight reduction, dietary modifications, and in some patients, um, certainly a statin could be used as well, or fish oil, depending on your preference. The, I have not run into issues with um, infection with mTOR inhibitors running at a level of three to five, um, aside from potentially, again, stomatitis related issues. And in those settings, you would hold or reduce the medication dosing and or consider antibiotics, particularly as it um, uh, holds true for the stomatitis concerns. So um, other treatment for angiomyelopulmas. One thing that I think is really important to emphasize, surgical resection is not a treatment for these lesions. And unfortunately we've seen this um, in one other, one patient that I've run into in the past, 
who was cared for um, in an older cohort and had a, an AML locked out, that only contributes to CKD development and risk for end-stage kidney disease, a surgical resection, unless you have a life-threatening bleed, is not, um, not standard of care treatment for TSC angiomyelipomas. Um, so for certainly first line is mTOR inhibitors, um, but in some patients where they can't tolerate an mTOR inhibitor or the lesion has grown quickly or you're just detecting it or you have a symptomatic lesion, you may have to consider embolization. Um, I have not had to um, uh, do this for a patient yet. I have one patient who I think we probably will at some point in time because he um, simply does not tolerate mTOR inhibitors. It worsens his neuropsychiatric um, issues at baseline, um, unfortunately for that patient. So um, in that patient, at some point in time, we'll probably have to talk about an embolization for his TSC associated AML. Um, one thing that's also well published on this is the risk for post-embolization syndrome, where you end up with an inflammatory response that can cause significant fever and pain and last for several days, despite um, you know, just over-the-counter analgesics. Um, and so one, one piece of, one, I guess, tidbit for anybody who may consider this for a patient, would be that technically there's good data in the literature to support prednisone in parallel with um, embolization to reduce the risk of post-embolization syndrome. Patients probably should be monitored um, um, at least for 24 hours in the um, post-procedural um, period um, to ensure that they um, don't have significant issues with embolization. So again, here's a nice real-world image um, that um, comes from one of my patients in our practice here. Um, this is a patient who you can see has a big old angiomyelipoma. As I mentioned before, it's hanging off sort of the cortex. It's on, on the, technically not in like the, the inner part of the kidney, um, the true medulla, although it can extend um, inwards, but you oftentimes will see the cortical deformation is one of the um, most, I guess, convincing signs. Um, and so this patient's baseline angiomyelipoma was 5.5 centimeters, 12 months after everolimus had shrunken by um, a full centimeter down to 4.4 centimeters. And two months later, um, gosh, it's practically barely even recognizable, 2.2 centimeters at that point in time. And you can see here as well that in general, the patient's everolimus drug levels in this period of time, there were some earlier higher um, uh, levels, but we were able to get the um, level more consistently in the level of range of five over time. Um, the data do suggest that it's safe long-term um, or as long-term as you, you um, see benefit from. And so a lot of times I'll tell families like, look, let's get this shrunk down to less than three centimeters. Let's see sustained um, you know, uh, stability and size. And then if the family wants to try a drug a holiday to have them off of Everlimus for a while, excuse me, I'm fine with that. Um, but typically we'll just monitor closely about every year or so. Um, there's no data to suggest that you have an immediate rebound in size with stopping the drug, um, but it, the, the tumor will come back with time. So we just follow closely. Um, another set of pictures I wanted to show you, because I think these are just honestly quite impressive pictures, are TSC-associated cystic kidney diseases. Again, in brief, we only have a few minutes left. There's so much we could talk about with the kidney components of TSC, again, including um, renal cell carcinomas. But what you can um, see are either large cysts or small cysts. Um, shockingly enough, um, the cystic disease is the second most common renal manifestation of TSC after angiomyelipomas. It's reported in probably about 40% of TSC patients um, over time and depending on the imaging modality used. Um, 
you can end up with just like single um, small cysts um, across both kidneys. You can also have contiguous gene deletion syndrome, which Alpa talked about just a second, um, but we'll touch on the next slide. And then also more glomerulocystic kidney disease as well. So contiguous gene deletion syndrome, I actually have two or three of these patients right now. One is actually status post-transplant and doing great. Um, but you end up with these um, both um, PKD1 gene deletion and TSC2 gene deletion um, from the genes on the chromosome 16. Um, again, PKD1 gene, I think as we all know, is associated with more severe um, cystic kidney disease in, in most settings. Um, so this contiguous gene deletion syndrome can lead to early onset polycystic kidney disease. Um, they may actually present at birth because of the significant um, PKD associated with um, their gene deletion syndrome, which we've had a couple of those kids, and a high risk for CKD leading to transplant in this population because of the um, complete distortion of the parenchyma. You can still get angiomyolipoma in the setting of cystic kidney disease. So for example, here, and you can see the orange circle I have, these are the cysts, and then the black little blob is actually an angiomyolipoma in this patient's kidneys um, as well. So um, people often will ask, is there a role for mTOR inhibitors in cystic kidney disease? Um, I think the answer is maybe. Depends on who you ask. So I know Dr. Bissler from Memphis um, really feels strongly that mTOR inhibitors in small cystic kidney disease, like the small um, bilateral cystic kidney disease is actually probably helpful, um, although there probably is not a lot of data to support that at this point in time. Um, here is data from Walls and colleagues published in 2010 in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked over 500 individuals who um, were on um, uh, everolimus versus placebo um, for cystic kidney disease um, not associated with TSC. Um, and they did in this population, in just the strict cystic kidney disease population, show potentially um, a decrease in the cystic kidney growth. But again, I realize this is kind of controversial um, data, depending on who you talk to in the nephrology field, peds or adult. So with regard to my own practice, um, again, this is, this is opinion-based evidence from our own center. I personally don't prescribe Everolimus specifically for TSC-associated cystic kidney disease but certainly an area for future research. Um, so sort of as we wrap for home here, diagnostic dilemmas. I think this is one of the things that I struggle with the most and why we need a good team to take care of these patients. So we all love the um, radiology reports where you know, clinical correlation is, is required or, or, or necessary, where we're finding ourselves saying, well, what are they trying to say here? Sometimes the radiologists, as they read these um, images will say, fat poor angiomyolipoma versus renal cell carcinoma. Clinical correlation is required. And that's one of the most frustrating reads on an read MRI because unless you biopsy um, those lesions, um, the clinical correlation can be sometimes hard um, to come by. Um, so again, fat poor angiomyolipomas are commonly observed in these patients. And um, overall in comparison, um, renal cell carcinomas, yes, do occur in TSC patients. They're only occurring in probably two to 3% of TSC patients. So the likelihood is that if you see one of these lesions, it's probably a fat poor um, angiobilipoma, probably less likely a renal cell carcinoma, but most often every time in the setting, I'm gonna 
call one of the Euro radiology or the Euro um, onc guys here and ask them to take a look at the images and get their input as well and see what they think as far as next step for any um, diagnostic procedures. I have had one renal cell carcinoma in the last five years that we've detected um, on imaging that the Euro onc guys were just like, this doesn't look right. We should go ahead and biopsy. And sure enough, it was a renal cell carcinoma. Um, and so, as I mentioned here, um, the um, concern for renal cell carcinoma does come up fairly often in the imaging that we get. Um, most of the time it will be a fat poor AML and you can follow clinically. Um, I found this table that was really um, nicely done um, from American Journal of Radiology in 2019 that does have some nice comparison of the imaging characteristics between fat poor AML and renal cell carcinoma. Although I guess, again, when in doubt, um, if you have questions and this comes up in your practice, definitely reaching out to the Euro-Onc guys. Paul Gelhaus has been wonderful as far as has Ken Neppel in um, helping me sort through some of these images and feeling okay to follow versus intervene. So um, that's a whirlwind tour through TSC, the kidney component, TSC in general. I wanted to just again highlight our team. Um, we do uh, monthly clinics basically at this point in time. So Dr. Sidhu does quarterly um, since the genetic needs um, can be spaced out for some of these patients a little bit more often. But then Dr. Siliberto and I are doing, you know, he's managing segas and seizures, and then I'm following up with any hypertension or um, CKD management. So we do see um, a little more frequently from the kidney and neuro side, but then have the joint clinics throughout all of those, which makes it, I think, really great for the patients that they get comprehensive multidisciplinary care. Um, I think the other cool thing about, um, about this in general is that we actually are a TSC um, Alliance Center. We are um, blessed by the Alliance to be a comprehensive clinic and to provide um, a guideline-based follow-up for this population. So I see there's some questions in the chat um, that we can go through. And let's see. Um, Feel free to chime in as well. Moni asked about studies on using mTOR in a preventative way. Um, in any suggestions on usage of gene therapies? So um, this is my bias. I think we should put Everolimus honestly in the water for these patients as soon as we can, because um, it probably does decrease the um, impact of the sequelae of this disease long-term. I think there are some people at the field that would also support that, including again, the, the Memphis team I don't think we're quite there yet as a field, but I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in time we do start talking about earlier use of mTOR inhibitors given the favorable side effect profile, especially of Everolimus. Um, I wish we were there now, but I, I will say that if I have a reason to use it, I do, because I do think that long-term this is a, the right thing for the patients. So I think um, Moni Frere had a question about if you find an angiomyolipoma incidentally on imaging, done for other reasons and not clear that the patient has TSC is genetic testing the next step. So I do get a lot of these patients in my adult, because I see adults as well, in my cancer predisposition clinic. Um, I find it very frequently that an incidental angiomyolipoma is seen and you can see them sporadically. So as an adult, you know, the skin manifestations are 100%. So my job is I do an exam and if there's no skin manifestations, if they've had no neuropsychiatric, no seizures or, you know, no other cardiac or any other um, clinical picture, 
evident for TSC, I do not send genetic testing. The issue is that genetic testing is not 100%. So, you know, 30% of individuals will not have a positive mutation. So the clinical criteria are kind of trump, um, although that's a bad choice of word, <laughs> trump the... <laughs> from the genetic testing. So I, I do not send if it's just one angiomyelipoma. Yeah, we, we do get a few of these, these consults too. And again, sometimes they're, um, they come up on ultrasound imaging incidentally for some other thing. And so sometimes too, what we can do just to start off as well, it would be to get the right imaging to confirm that really there is an angiomyelipoma. And if we have concerns, if, I, if this comes to me first rather than ALPA, then our team kind of banters back and forth to say, what do we need to do next? Do they need to see the whole team? Do they need um, more comprehensive imaging or genetic testing? Um, the question Moni had about tanned and brain tumors. Um, so yes, I think um, Alpa probably replied to that too, um, that it conceivably can improve um, SEGAs, probably not as much the, 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 the cortical tubers, although I'm not 100% sure on that. That we have data for that, but the SEGAs for sure. Um, oddly enough, I've had one patient for sure, maybe two, who really just not done as well with mTOR inhibitor once they truly have um, more of the tanned spectrum. One of my patients we had, we tried it twice out of sort of good faith. Um, that patient developed significant um, insomnia, wasn't sleeping for two or three days at a time, pacing, a little bit more agitation. And as soon as we stopped, um, they, the side effects reversed. So I do um, sort of caution families a little bit that like, look, if they have neuropsychiatric concerns, I've had this happen once, let's just monitor closely and we can be willing to be flexible with um, medication and so forth. Um, but in general, I, I haven't seen any other adverse issues with it, so. Just worth noting, uh, Lindsay and uh, Alpa, very nice talk, by the way. Thank the you. dose of abiroliumus that we use for this condition, at least in adults, is much, much higher than what is used for immunosuppression. So at least yes. for the transplant nephrologists, we're used to using the 0 0.5, 0 0.75, one milligram dosing. Here we use yeah. up to 10 milligrams. Uh, yeah. Up to 10 milligrams. And we're using the preparation of abiroliumus that's approved for the use of yeah. Approved in oncology for treating RCC, not the dose exactly. that's used uh, for immunosuppression. Right. The difference between Zortrus and Afenator. Yep, exactly. So yeah, the Zortrus dosing is 0 0.5, 0 0.7, 0 0.5, 0.751 milligrams twice daily, as you mentioned. And then um, Afenator is once daily dosing. And um, typically I'll start out between 2.5 to 5 milligrams and then increase in 2.5 milligram increments from there. Um, you can uh, do this as a disperse formulation where you dissolve the um, medication and then you administer via um, sterile water in a syringe. Some of our patients, we have to do that because of, um, again, inability to take pills. But um, in general, again, easy once daily dosing. I'm Hello, uh, this is my, yeah. uh, uh, I'm Tarek, I'm a transplant fellow. I don't know, have you touched this issue or not? Um, I had probably missed a significant part of your talk. Uh, genetic uh, testing, this is what you recommend in a patients who are uh, potential donors for their you know, family members? It's a great question. So I guess in general, like if you have a, so for my one of my patients, right, who had um, the contiguous gene deletion syndrome, um, 
you know, I think we had decided that we, the parents otherwise had no phenotypic um, ultrasound findings. Um, and actually ne neither parent for my child was going to be a good donor because of body habitus. But um, yeah, that's in a setting like that, I would typically um, circle back to ALPA um, and say, what do you think um, if the parents haven't already had um, genetic testing done? That way we made sure to dot I's and cross T's. So the, interestingly too, I'll, I'll try to present this data in transplant conference at some point later this year, but we're going back through the SRTR um, and looking at um, rates of TSC um, diagnosis associated kidney transplant over time. Um, and, you know, trying to see what's the lag between waitlisting and transplant um, and so forth. Um, and what's the long-term outcomes as well. So we do have some nice data for um, a solid, you know, couple hundred transplant patients over the last 20 years um, nationally with TSC requiring kidney transplant that we'll um, pull together into a talk later this year. Um, not to belabor the point, but if you're going to be testing a first degree relative of a person to be a living kidney donor, it is first important to verify the genetic basis of the affected individual. Exactly before you test an asymptomatic individual, because if the likelihood of a positive genetic diagnosis in affected individual is not 100%, then you can't use a negative test straight right. out in the donor to exclude disease. Exactly. Right. I mean, so you have to have the mutation that runs in the family. Mm -hmm. And then Moni asks about becoming a part of a standard prenatal genetic testing. That's a great question. You mean TSC one and two testing? Yes. I think the problem is that it's not 100%. So, you know, there are so many other conditions where we could do prenatal genetic testing. And I think that the prenatal carrier screen only looks for, um, you know, that we do on parents, just looks for carriers of recessive conditions and not dominant conditions. So it's probably, you know, something that I think we can all employ, but it is going to be falsely reassuring if we do the test and it's negative. Got it. If anybody, again, has any questions going forward or you run into a new TSC um, patient that comes into your clinic, I know Alpa and I are always happy to be, um, you know, to answer any questions. And from a genetics perspective, they, they do really help us um, to guide and lead the multidisciplinary um, guideline-based uh, imaging and screening. I think one thing that I've probably been a little more shocked at than I should be is how isolated, excuse me, many people's care is outside of an academic setting. So they may just get fragments of their um, needed um, follow-up and surveillance. So when in doubt, I think in pulling in genetics is the right way to go about it to make sure they're really having a medical home for their TSC associated care that they need long-term. But I'm happy to help if it ever comes across anybody's lap. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank Thanks you all. Again.